When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today is political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Gracho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, where are we going to begin today? No shortage of stories to choose from. Oh, plenty to choose from. Well, it's a big day for people's finances, Simon. And of course, you know, Share Radio, we are we are a money station. We want to talk mm. about people's stuff here as well. But there is, of course, uh, a political dimension to the, the cost of living uh, uh, crisis that is currently sweeping the country. Uh, today, we have had a sort of plethora of announcements that will affect people. We've had the first back-to-back right in the base rate of the Bank of England since 2004. That's jumped to the heady heights of 0.5%, but still it's um, <laughs> nearly um, 50 times what it was uh, at the start of the month. And then you've got the energy price cap, a political tool designed by this Conservative government to address energy uh, price costs and keep them low, uh, now pushing bills up by 54%. Mm. And the price gap is going up so much because of what the market regulator describes as a once in a 30 year event. <laughs> yes. And and we've also had a remarkable intervention from the Chancellor today designed to mitigate some of the more serious implications of this as well. But long story short, with the Bank of England projecting that inflation could now reach 7%. It's and we have to remember the Bank of England has been behind the curve on projections. The whole Absolutely, day. so, so it could be if they're as well. saying seven, yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So it it there is going to be a a lot hitting people's pockets in the next few months. Yes, and not much can be done about it. I mean, a great deal of the problem, of course, cause I suppose the price cap actually distorts the market. So it just simply disguises what the market prices are are doing. Yes, but there's no talk about um, doing away with the price cap, no talk of doing away with some of the green levy, which is something like 25% or more of most people's bill now, isn't it? It is, yes. And I think arguably there's, this is going to be the issue with any sort, anything, any measure to do with tackling uh, climate change and improving energy efficiency of homes The two are very closely connected as well. But of course, improving energy efficiency in homes is very important for helping drive bills down as well. But we have to recognise that if we are going to adjust to a society with this ambition of a net zero by 2050, mm. it's going to cost a lot of money. And a lot of that is going to have to come from people's pockets. But time this alongside the government's uh, planned tax increase with the national insurance hike coming in April, the government's potentially facing quite a toxic combination of measures here. And the Chancellor's stood up today in the House of Commons and he has announced that there will be a £200 uh, off energy bills that will be repayable later on from October, and also £150 uh, ta- uh, council tax rebate. But with normal tariffs going up by nearly £700, this covers just half of that cost. Yes. And of course, one could argue that 
in the push for net zero, um, what the governments have not been doing is actually ensuring that we have adequate energy supplies until we're actually ready to go completely green. Exactly. Um, it doesn't seem, does it seem to you that the, the country doesn't plan ahead in the way that I remember it doing when I was much younger? That whether it's, I don't know, a problem with the civil service or with governments, or what, but they just seem to react to what is going on at the moment. Nobody ever seems to look very far ahead. Admittedly, I suppose going net zero by 2050 is looking ahead, but without necessarily the ability to get there without massive pain. I think you're right. Political short-termism has arguably been accelerated in the last few years. And I think a lot of decisions that have been taken, certainly by uh, governments, always take short-term decisions anyway. But there is there are nearly always those in government who want to look ahead. We think about the last Labour government, Andrew Adon is pushing the high speed two, for example. Mm-hmm. There's issues like runway capacity at Heathrow that have been decided. But it seems increasingly the last few years, certainly with the pandemic, certainly with the economic shocks that have shaken the country since 2008, the governments have been driven to more and more costly interventions in the economy and people's lives, uh, both in terms of fiscal and non-fiscal measures, to try and cope with a rapidly uh, changing world. And the issues, for example, relating to gas prices are geopolitical, but also the UK is hit particularly hard because we have some of the lowest level of gas storage mm-hmm. in Europe. The funny thing is that there are these longer term decisions are increasingly being passed from the hands of the centre, from the civil service, from the ministers to independent bodies. So say, for example, the government, this government has created the National Infrastructure Commission that is meant to report on long term needs. But if you look at someone like Boris Johnson, for example, he's more interested in eye-catching projects like Boris Island, like building a bridge between mm. Scotland and Northern Ireland. This isn't long-term thinking. The stuff, the stuff we're talking about here is not glamorous. It's not going to be politically rewarding. But it's the kind of stuff, and, it, and, and political short-term goes all the way back you know, through history. You could argue Thatcher's sale of the council houses was an incredibly short-sighted policy, given the fact they didn't build any to replace them. But it was at the time it was popular. But I, I think that has in, in, come to dominate as events have come to shake people even more. And it's a very brave politician or civil servant that makes, and I say politician here mainly, who makes an argument for a policy that won't pay dividends immediately. And that's, that's the thing when it comes to long-term mm. investment in things like energy infrastructure, transport, climate change as well. But we do have a focus more than ever now on longer-term existential challenges as well. And energy security is obviously one of those. Yes. I mean, the going green seems to be um, a primary concern. Energy security appears almost not to have been considered as far as I'm concerned. As you say, we've got one of the lowest um, proportions of gas storage anyway. So we're bringing, we're actually liquefying gas, bringing it in massive tankers from uh, either the United States or other parts of the world. Hardly what you consider to be particularly green. No. And of course, this has been driven by the fact the government has benefited from the short term of phasing coal out from UK electric generation. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it's incredibly welcome that we've done so, because if we were being looking purely on energy security, the UK would basically be doing all of our electricity from coal mm. generation. Mm. It's our most abundant energy source. We'd also be using wind power as well. But the issue is, is that there are very few things as reliable in terms of electricity as gases. And of course, the UK has benefited from having North Sea oil as well. The US, of course, also has this push because of fracking. Don't forget, although despite the numerous achievements that the Obama administration made relating to um, green agenda, 
it certainly was short-sighted in the short, you know, short-term energy security and self-sufficiency in increasingly complicated and multipolar and um, isolationist world, I would argue, is very tempting. But this is this is this is this is one of the big conundrums: is, is how do you square the circle between the need to take because because an awareness of these challenges is never has arguably never been more prolific, mm. but that it's best encapsulated in this country by the national insurance issue. Now, the government has chosen, in my opinion, to take a very difficult decision to raise taxes. Now, they're sticking to this. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister wrote an article in the Times at the weekend, which basically said, we need this money to pay for the NHS going forward. We need mm. this revenue. And arguably, you know, this is the people would, you know, we go back 10 years to the to the to jump, not jump, sorry, to the Cameron Osborne era. They would say the government was then saying the opposite. So I would argue that it is healthy to look to raise revenue now. But of course, in the short term, it's going to be a hard decision to push through because it's going to hit people in the pocket. Most people will yeah. see a certain amount of money disappear out of their paycheck at a time in which inflation has reached a decade's high. Energy prices are going up and we're dealing with the post pandemic. But arguably, I would say that there is a case for, ref- for tax revenue to go up because ultimately the government has been either borrowing or cutting spending, hmm. which hasn't done anything good. And at some point, this debt will have to be paid back. Uh, I would much rather we did steps now than to re- and then reduce the burden on our children, given it was us who've racked up this debt and responded to COVID. Yep. Uh, Can you agree disagreement from me there? Let's talk in generalities before we look in our next section at, at uh, the possible uh, challenges for the Tory leadership. But in general, um, it's been a long time since people have been as badly hurt in their pocket as they're going to be this year. Mm. We've got taxes going up, cost of energy going up, interest rates going up. I mean, inflation just generally is going to be pretty bad. And as um, Jack Munro has pointed out, a very successful campaign, uh, it's it's those people at the lower end of the scale who were most badly hit um, by this. How does it usually reflect in political fortunes? Is it one of the most important things when, when people are hit in their pocket? Do they turn against the government of the day? We're looking back here to the 1970s now and inflation. Yeah, we have to go back a while. Running yeah. that. So, and again, I think we could draw a lot of lessons from the 70s, you know, the issue of Europe is at the centre as well, cost of living. And of course, that's what led to the pivot away from Britain as a corporatist society to the monetarist um, economics of Margaret Thatcher. And, and of course, you know, many of the things that Thatcher did there were designed to combat inflation many the, the bank of england has an inflation target for a reason now uh the, the simple fact is that politicians are going to be facing the biggest fall in living standards since comparable records began 30 years ago and of course we go back 30 years we're hitting black wednesday we're hitting that kind of era now mm. disposable after-tax income is due to shrink by two percent this year and by another half a percent next year as well this is the biggest annual reduction in spending power since at least 1990. This requires once-in-a-generation leadership. It requires something that arguably, given the Tories are seen as the party of you know, the economy, and given the fact that they have in the past taken radical action to shore up the economy as well, and, and it has you know, arguably worked. We had 10 years of solid growth when I was growing up into the Blair government as well. However, I knowing this Prime Minister and knowing the fact that he is a big spend uh, uh, populist conservative rather than a small state mm. one. The Tory party has to reconcile how Sunak can continue to say, I want to cut taxes at the same time as they are asking people to breach into their pockets and pay something for the NHS as well. 
both messages cannot coexist, you either need to put a case for the long-term good of the country, which I think is something that a lot of people would, would rally around, or you give in to short-term political pressures and accept that you need to find, as they've done today, £9.1 billion to help with energy bills. It, they cannot ride both horses, though. Yeah. Uh, Mike, good moment perhaps for us to take a quick breather. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So um, we were talking there about um, government and leadership. Um, Boris Johnson is still there. Um, I'm not sure if the last time we spoke or even the time before, you might have believed that he would be. So what is happening? How serious is the leadership um, challenge for Boris Johnson? Are the Conservatives um, going to keep him for a while longer? And is he any more an electoral asset? We don't know the answer to the last question yet. And we will only know if the Prime Minister is still in post in May. He, I think, has done enough in the short term to survive. Uh, the context of this has been obviously the unfolding uh, response to, to, to Partygate. We've had a partial update from the civil servant Sue Gray, who's led the investigation internally, which criticised, and I quote, serious leadership failings inside Downing Street and the workplace culture that has, has clearly been allowed to, pres- this prime minister has clearly presided over, uh, allowing his closest aides and possibly even his. Uh, his wife to to hold gatherings in his private flat and his staff to gather as well at a time when we weren't allowed to do this now you best encapsulate this by saying people would perceive this as one rule for them and a rule for everyone else but the issue then becomes in the long run does this damage the credibility not just of Boris Johnson but also of the government and the office of Down, of 10 Downing Street too and given the fact that you know just two years ago Johnson had taken the government into its first positive opinion poll lead since um, for about a decade and now his favorability ratings are going through the floor that says something a lot. And also, there's a certain degree of for people like myself who admittedly are not fans of Boris Johnson at all. There's a certain element of you know, we can we can almost enjoy this a little bit. But actually, we should be aware of this because a lot of people did vote and put their faith in Boris Johnson to, to help them out. And he has, I argue, played these people for jumps to a certain degree. And that isn't something that anybody should glory in. That isn't something that, and, and I think, although the people in the Conservative Party, and there are comparably few of them who are coming out, um, they're starting to actually reach the tipping point now where they're getting a bit sick of his antics. You know, we, we saw when he delivered his response in, during Prime Minister's questions, uh, he repeated a, a, a colossal untruth about the leader of the opposition uh, being involved in a decision not to prosecute the late paedophile 
Jimmy Savile, mm. which is a complete falsehood. Uh, multiple people can say this isn't true. And even Conservative MPs have come out and said this must be withdrawn. But then again, on the other side of it, you get people like Nadine Doris, who are arch loyalists to Boris, going on the TV and defending that line. And there's more than just a little bit of an element of the last days of Donald Trump in this as well. But don't expect the Prime Minister to be gone anytime soon. We're looking at about 10 of his own MPs that have publicly said he's going to go so far. We need 54 letters to go in. And even if there was a confidence vote, Boris would probably win it at the moment. I suspect a lot, a lot of people I've spoken to who are inside the Conservative Party, Conservative supporters, believe the Prime Minister will hang on until at least May. If there is a rout at the local election, then they can get rid of him and have a couple of years to build in a new leader ahead of 2024. If if the letters go in and there is a vote of confidence in the leader of the Conservative Party uh, and it fails, as you give the impression it might do at the moment. Yes. How long is it then before there can be another one? Presumably 12, they can't just keep having them. No, 12 months. If, 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 if they time this vote wrong, if the people who want Boris out, and there are quite a few of them inside the Conservative Party, Parliamentary Party who do, and you know, the, excluding the ones who have put in, don't forget we've already had an MP cross the floor of the House as well. Mm. We've had a, a member of his government resign, albeit a very junior member. We've had four MPs since his statement on Tuesday come out and say they think he should go publicly, albeit people who aren't fans of his as well. We have to remember that if they time this wrong, Johnson can just say, this is a small number of people who dissent against me, don't like me, I'm still here. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, conservative leadership, like toppling the leader at the wrong time can have disastrous consequences for the party. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, as you remember, was brought down and then you know, just after, three years after winning a, you know, a majority of 100 in 1990. Mm. The John Major spent four, five years being terrorised by his own party over Europe to the point where the government eventually ended up effectively almost kicking itself out of office, more so than New Labour did, I would argue, but it's becoming dysfunctional. David Cameron uh, had to quit after trying to reconcile the Conservative psychology on Europe, and Theresa May is probably still undergoing therapy for her three years as Conservative <laughs> Party leader and the relationship between her and the ERG. So the three-part contract doesn't always have the best instincts in this as well, but I would argue that actually, in the case of Boris Johnson, they may on this occasion have actually got it right, that they're realising, as you say, that his appeal was very much of that time in 2019. And it was a, there's a very interesting line here that's come out from the, the MP, uh, Sir Charles Walker. And he said, Boris has done some great things, but he says, I think he needs to recognise that his time on the stage is done. And David Davis has said the same thing. I think, actually, if Boris was smart, he would look to retire before the next election, go with his reputation largely intact with his own party and give time for his successor to come in. And because he could he could then, you know, no no one I don't I think a lot of people just wanted to quietly get out of the way. And hmm. that seems to be a good thing to do at the moment. But especially with a pending police investigation in the background. Um, of course one of the important things is any Conservative uh, member of Parliament who is debating whether or not he wants the prime minister to go must be thinking well what would happen if he went who is there to replace him it's not as if there's sort of a massive number of really capable conservative politicians who are going to jockey for position is it well this is a tricky thing because obviously we do have the conservative party has had four elections uh, in which it is 
certainly emerged as the biggest party. I think two in which it's won an overall majority. Uh, it's lost. It's had a lot of internal struggles. It's lost a lot of experience. I mean, this is particularly prior to 2019. So the people that are left at the top now, the two leading contenders, one is Liz Truss, who's gone from being sort of Cameroonian ally all the way through to now being sort of uh, the libertarian wing of the Tory party's champion, someone who is at times deeply odd, I would say, in, in their public mm. pronouncements. Uh, if, if anyone ever wants to quite realize just how odd Liz Truss is, I could you know, I commend you to look at her 2014 party conference speech about pork markets. It's well worth a watch, especially <laughs> it, it, just how utterly bizarre it is. And she, she hasn't really mellowed since then. And then the comparatively inexperienced Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who, yes, has become one of the best known politicians in Britain, certainly one of the most popular ones as well, comparative because of his, uh, largely because of his interventions during COVID, namely mm-hmm. the Ferdo scheme. But these aren't political titans. We're not talking about the Ken Clarks and Michael Hester times of the past, even people like Gordon Brown here, but, the, but equally there wouldn't be a coronation. And there are people like Jeremy Hunt still waiting in the wings as well. And there are also people like Priti Patel, Nadeem Sahawi, who would love a run, Tom Tugendhat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who goes on. So there are more people who'd be interested in running than you think in this case. Whether or not they're capable, though, Simon, as you say, is an entirely different matter. Good moment for again, just for us to take a breather. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So, uh, Mike, where do we go now? I mean, we've been talking about um, um, Partygate and endlessly, um, but of course there are other important issues actually going on in the world outside. There are, and I think we have to turn our attention to what's happening on the eastern fringes of Europe with Russia. And I've had a good show this week sort of listening to people who know a great deal more about this than I do. And it's definitely, the situation in Russia is an absolutely fascinating one because the uh, we have basically a build-up of 100,000 Russian troops around, um, around the borders of Ukraine. Obviously, remember that um, Russia annexed the hmm. Crimean region and is currently involved in the dispute in the Donbass region in the east of the country as well. There is a lot of speculation that Russia is seeking to create a coastal corridor between the two areas to ensure supply, because at the moment water has to come via Ukraine as well. I've spoken to two people quite well informed in foreign affairs this week, and they've both said to me they do not think that uh, Russia is going to invade. They certainly feel this is saber-rattling. They, they point to the fact that whilst Russia has 100,000 troops, Ukraine's army is about 160,000, and they're training 100,000 more people. Uh, this is the government of Vladimir Zelensky, mm. who is very much um, pro-West, uh, pro-NATO. Uh, Ukraine is an interesting country because obviously it's 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 there's there's a case arguably for Russia to say they they want a um, they want a a buffer zone around their country. Obviously, uh, NATO is an instrument that survived from the Cold War, and uh, having yet another country on its borders join NATO in the form of Ukraine would uh, certainly impinge on what Russia sees as its sphere of influence as well. But equally, there's a great deal of um, tension, I think, around what 
could actually you know, around this kind of tactic because the, Russia doesn't just have the the military uh, presence here as well. It has this uh, tool at its disposal whereupon it can simply uh, issue Russian passports because there's, there's a great deal of there's a, a large proportion of Crimea are Russian speaking. Um, they can be oh, Ukraine. You mean? Sorry, yes, they, they yes say Ukraine. Ukraine are, are Russian speaking. Yes. They can be issued with the these Russian passports, and therefore it could almost lead to sort of a soft absorption of Ukraine into Russia just by simple, you know, uh, reassertion of a reallocation of national identity. And that's arguably far more sinister because a good old-fashioned invasion is something that people understand. You know, if troops are on the borders. What we should what we shouldn't. Um, make a mistake for is that even if russia stands the troops down and war is voted this isn't like the the excellent film uh munich the edge of war here this isn't like 1938 with the sudan land there there are far more complicated maneuvers going on from governments like russia like china of which using military force is only one tool at their disposal there are plenty of other ways in which they can seek to exert influence and are doing so because of a perceived weakness of the West, largely epitomized by the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. Yes. Uh, how important then is Russia's control of, of gas, and particularly when it comes to Germany, in, in, in all of this? I mean, the Germans particularly have been less than um, uh, strident in criticizing the Russians. Uh, many people are saying, well, their dependence on them for energy supplies is is really affecting how they think about real politic. Well, if we look at the fact that the um, the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has lead is first of all leading a multi-party coalition as well. Um, he doesn't share his predecessor Angela Merkel's opposition to the Nord Stream two pipeline. She refused to give go ahead mm. for that, and Russia is obviously very keen to get that gas in as well. But this influence that Russia has over European energy security through the gas imports there is largely waning because not only are Western countries moving, like Germany, particularly with the Greens in coalition, now moving rapidly towards renewables. And this, is, I think, I think is certainly something that they will look to do, especially given the decision that Merkel made years ago to close down Germany's nuclear plants. And this is a decision we see replicated across Western Europe as well. But there's also an issue that the gas resources are running out too. And Russia has this sort of time-limited field. So we're seeing different kinds of saber rattling here. And also don't forget the Russian economy is not in great shape. You know, we're not talking people often, you know, I think put Russia and China on the same level here. Um, Russia's very much an old power that still has, mm. you know, a lot of influence to exert locally. China's a significant economic power and also one that is 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 the rising geopolitical influence here as well. Now there are, of course, um issues you know america doesn't want to step back from this and there's 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 there's, there's obviously the big saber rattling there too and moscow's criticizing what they call a destructive step between the u.s saying that they'll send uh 2000 extra troops to poland and germany and move a thousand to romania but given the fact that we're talking about three thousand troops moving here versus russia's biggest deployment uh to regions uh to countries around the like Belarus since the Cold War ended. We're not talking about the same level here as well, but the diplomatic channels are still open. Russia wants to talk, and I suspect this is just another example. But the issue is, is then, 
does Russia then have to resort to this kind of tactic in the future to get what it seems to be, think should be its way? Mm. That's a deeply troubling thought. You, you talk about Russia's d- declining economy because, it, I mean, historically, it's often when countries are facing such problems that they are the most dangerous. Yes, exactly. And I think also we have to remember that for Vladimir Putin as well, that he's faced considerable domestic pressure to in the last few years. He's been running Russia for 22 years now. A key part of his political identity, his political appeal in Russia, is that he makes Russians feel good about themselves. He makes Russians feel like they are a strong country, a powerful country. I mean, this is a country where the Second World War is called the Great Patriotic War for a reason. They take a great deal of pride in their uh, position as a, you know, as, 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 a, as they have been a historically mm-hmm. a world power and an influential one as well. And also they, they see themselves as, you know, is being very much at times against against broadly speaking the west and putin has maintained his popularity in russia yes through a degree of strong arm tactics and intimidation but also by maintaining this sense that only putin can keep russia as a significance only he is a bulwark against declining influence and that's a very powerful tool particularly for a country where lots of people are patriotic and proud of where they live mike thank you very much indeed. That's all we've got time for this week. I've been in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. We'll be back with another edition of The Bigger Picture at the same time next week. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.